from our perspective, it may seem like God is part artist, part magician. It's magnificent the way he takes the people society wouldn't choose, the places no one would ever go, even the schemes of the enemy that are against his purposes, and forms them into a beautiful work of art. God is building his church and reaching the world with his love. But what's even more impressive than that, he's doing it through us, broken humanity. How is that even possible? When Jesus left, God sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside us, to lead us, and to empower us. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us into situations that seem normal and natural. Other times his miraculous work is much more apparent, but it's all supernatural. In the book of Acts, we see the gospel spreading through men and women, following the guidance and working in the strength of God's Holy Spirit. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This is the book of Acts. So as we continue um, our journey uh, into and through the story of the book of Acts, uh, it, it's good to just be reminded on occasion where we began the journey in the book of Acts, right? So it starts this way. The very first words in this book are, uh, in my first letter, O Theophilus, I wrote about the things that Jesus said and did before he ascended into heaven. And then from there, Luke launches into, now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, here's what began to unfold. And, and as we know, the first letter that Luke wrote to Theophilus was the book of Luke, and it really unpacked the life of Jesus and his redemptive work in our lives. So Luke writes the first letter to say, Jesus, who came, is in fact the promised Messiah. He did in fact suffer and die and rise from the dead so that he would rescue our souls so that we would be able to have right relationship with God and know God again in the way we were created and designed to know God. And then it's almost as though Luke now continues to write to Theophilus to say, now, once Jesus left, we discovered through what he said before he left and through what happened after he left that God did not only rescue our souls in his redemption of our lives, but he also restored our purpose. Because when we were created, we were created to know God intimately and we were created to make God known. So we were created to be image bearers of God, making his character known, making his kingdom known, living out uh, the realities of God in the created order that he established. Now, when we left that behind in choosing our own divinity instead of choosing God's divine protection and authority, sin entered into the world. So now the world we lived in no longer lent itself to imaging God because the world said that's a bad idea. So we find ourselves in this place where Luke says, well, our souls are rescued and our purpose restored, and I want you now to experience the story of the book of Acts, understanding what it now means to live under this new life that you've been given. That's really what the book of Acts is, is a constant revelation to say, this is your new life. This is what you should expect. This is what you should do. This is how it plays out. This is your freedom. This is why you're here. So everything we enter into as we enter into the book of Acts, we should be asking ourselves, God, what are you revealing through your Holy Spirit, through Luke, uh, about the life we should understand and expect we now live in our restored purpose and our rescued soul, our redemptive life? We discovered as we entered into the book of Acts some incredible things. The Spirit of God came and, and uh, resided in the body of Christ, the individuals that were the followers of Christ, each of them empowered by the Spirit. And in that empowerment, uncommon and wondrous things were born. We saw really the miraculous on two levels. The miraculous in terms of actual circumstances change that shouldn't change. So a blind man can see now. A sick person is healed now. Like, like actual, like someone's in prison and ah, they're set free now. Like miraculous changing of circumstances. So that was part of the picture. The other miracle we saw 
uh, was this miraculous transcendence of circumstances. So uh, when, when they were supposed to be afraid, they were bold. When they were supposed to be angry, they were loving. When they were supposed to be full of anxiety, they were full of peace. When they were supposed to retreat, they moved forward. Like you, you just see this uncommon reality. When you're supposed to say, this is mine, I need to protect it, they were saying, this is ours, let's share it. So we just constantly went, wow, this is a miraculous community. It's uncommon. But then another odd thing began to develop. In the midst of this miraculous reality being born, we also noticed that some of the external realities were still impacting and affecting this community in a way that was sort of worldly, right? I mean, they, they struggled with some things. They were tired and hungry. They didn't feed the right people properly. Like, like there was still a little bit of, ah, this isn't working. Oh, it's her fault. Like you saw some natural stuff happening. They weren't immune to the realities of planet Earth. And you saw persecution, which was sort of odd because you kind of went, if this is like the new miraculous community, doesn't God sort of fence us in and protect us from all the horrors of the world? Because we now belong to the kingdom of God. So surely that's like our new life. And then we started realizing, no, 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 hold on. The, the reason we're seeing some of this stuff is because he didn't take us. <laughs> he left us here, so we still experience a lot of what everybody else experiences from natural planet Earth and from persecution of the hostility of planet Earth, and so we should expect some of that. So we saw a bit of it, right? You know, Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin and, and don't preach anymore. Bam, bam, go away. And, and then suddenly it happened. What we thought was going to be sort of a, a natural experience of a bit of persecution here and there, Stephen, who was one of the guys selected to help feed the uh, Greek widows, goes and preaches the gospel in front of the uh, synagogue of the free men. He's arrested, taken before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. He preaches the gospel to them. They don't like it at all. They push him out, and they actually affect his death, his stoning. They take rocks, and they throw it at him until he dies. And, and that story, as it's happening uh, we're both sort of shocked that God would allow that, and yet simultaneously we also realize this seems to be kind of part of the expectation of the story. There's going to be the miraculous, but there's also going to be martyrdom, right? I mean, a dying to self and sometimes a physical dying. So, so that's there. And behind that story, as the persecution expands, there's this character sort of in the shadows. His name is Saul. And he's hanging in the shadows, and we get to know him a little bit. He's very passionate, full of zeal. He is protecting the institution of the Jewish people now. Because remember, uh, the Jewish leadership had moved from protecting truth to protecting institution. And so Paul was zealous about that. I mean, I'm sorry, Saul was zealous about that. He wanted to protect what he perceived to be uh, the affront from outside of a blasphemy that said there was this Messiah, and, and this Messiah was God, and that's blasphemous because there's only one God, and it's not this guy. And so he begins to stomp out any place where the gospel seems to come. And when he killed Stephen, and he allowed that, suddenly a great persecution broke out, and the church scattered, remember? Out of Jerusalem, all over the place. Well, Saul... He's a strategic guy. So instead of saying, well, we've won, we got the gospel stomped out in Jerusalem, he goes, uh, 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 no. I can see where this is going. We got to chase that gospel down and we got to kill it wherever it raises its head. So he goes to the, uh, the, the high court, the Sanhedrin, and he gets permission from them, papers from them, to be able to travel around the known world seeking out the gospel and killing it. It's just so awesome. Like, I mean, it's like 007 status, you know, like here, you can shoot and kill and ask questions later. And that's what Paul get, uh, Saul gets. He gets the power through the papers to go into any city or town, any synagogue, and if he hears the gospel, if he so much as hears it, he can arrest you, and if you resist, he can kill you. Wow, and that's some power. And so Saul, in his zealousness, heads out and chases the gospel down. And his first stop is Damascus. Damascus is 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. You can see it there on the map. It's right above Jerusalem. And uh, Paul heads to Damascus, uh, intent on finding the gospel there and snuffing it out. And word gets out before, Paul, uh, before Saul goes to Damascus and other areas. Hey guys, this guy Saul is coming. He's the one that made Stephen die. And he's coming and he's, if he finds you, he's going to kill you. 
He's going to arrest you. So if you, if you find him in your city, uh, lay low, keep things light, have him move on, and then we can, we can jump up again. So words traveled out uh, ahead of Saul. Saul's heading to Damascus, and if you were here last week, you know, on the way to Damascus, a kind of an odd thing happens, right? Jesus decides that he's gonna show up and talk to Saul, and it wasn't very pretty. And so Saul is, oh, what, what on earth? And Jesus is like, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, oh, no, no, what? And, and he goes blind, and he, he has to be led to Damascus by one of his guys, and he gets to Damascus, and we end the story where it literally says in verse nine of chapter nine, and, and Saul was blind, and he did not eat, and he did not drink for three days. I mean, would you eat and drink after that? I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I'd be confused. I'd be scared. I'd be going, whoa, whoa, what on earth just happened? I mean, my entire paradigm, my entire life, everything I was zealous about, everything that mattered to me, it's all gone. It's all lost. And, and now I'm looking back, dealing with my past, and what have I done, but not knowing what my future is, what does it mean, and who's Jesus, and is he real, and what is this, and I'm blind, and will I ever see again, and I don't want to eat. I mean, wouldn't that be you? So what, what we need to understand, though, is that this story is unfolding secret to everybody else in the story. You with me? The only people that know that Saul has had a conversion experience on the road to Damascus is us because we're reading the story. But the people in the story, they don't know that. See, the, the church in Jerusalem didn't hear about the Damascus experience right when it happened. The church in Damascus didn't hear about the, the, this conversion experience right when it happened. As far as they're concerned, Saul's on his way to Damascus to kill all the followers of the way. And we have to remember that because otherwise the context of the story doesn't make any sense to us. So as we step into the next story, Luke's doing what he always does. He's telling this story and simultaneously telling this story so that they're happening at the same time and this one isn't aware of this one and this one isn't aware of this one, like the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. And so we get to read both kind of going, oh, oh it's gonna be so fun, it's gonna be so fun, oh! convergence but they are in the story going this is so scary this is so scary oh it's a totally different experience you understand so as we jump into the story let's remember that where Luke goes next is saying while Saul was sitting blind getting hungrier and completely scared and confused and begging God to show him there was this other thing going on let's go see what that was uh, Acts chapter 9 we're going to turn there uh, verse 10, and if you have one of our Bibles, that is on page 596. Uh, our Bibles are under the seat. So 596, chapter 9, verse 10. So verse 9, of course, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That's Saul. Then it says, now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. I love the way that story starts. So, so it's like Luke saying, okay, so let's just, let's just take a break from the Saul deal for a second. Now, while this was going on, there was this disciple whose name was Ananias, and he was in Damascus, same city now as Saul is in sitting around. And it says this, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. I love that. That's always, we, Ananias. No, that's it, that's it, Ananias. And, and he said, that's Ananias, here I am, Lord, here I am. Now, seems like a silly little start to the story, but it's a, a critical moment. And, and again, as we read the scriptures, if we can read them in the, in the light of how somebody uh, would be reading them with a full handle on scripture, then every little moment, every little phrase, every little word uh, is, is more than what it seems to be, you understand? Because it's revealing something to us. So this one, for example, instantaneously, if you're reading this and you're Theophilus or you're Luke writing it and you have a Jewish context where you understand the Old Testament, when you hear somebody say these words when called, Ananias, here I am, Lord, that immediately transports you into the Old Testament to every other incident of great and faithful men that believed God and did something completely insane and a great story emerged from it. Like automatically you should be there. When you hear Ananias say, here I am, Lord, you know all about Ananias now. You know everything you need to know about this guy. It's like those movies where in three minutes in the intro of the movie, they build the entire character for you real quick. And you go, that, that's not real. 
But it's like, yeah, but you need to know this character and we don't have 45 minutes to tell you about it. So instead of Luke writing 45 minutes about Ananias and his history and he's, he loved Jesus and is a disciple and this and that, he goes, he was a disciple, that says a lot, and when God called his name, his response was that of the great men of faith in the past. Here I am, Lord. You call, I'm ready. It is the opposite of the response we tend to have in our cultural experience. Let me explain for a second. When we enter into the reality of Christ, I think, and this is an ordinary sort of church experience, it may not be your personal experience, you may be very excited to discover what God has to say, but most of us see it this way. I have a fun life, then Jesus comes and collides with me and robs me of my fun life by giving me a boatload of rules to follow, and if I don't, he gets mad and punishes me. I mean, isn't that kind of how we sometimes live, right? I mean, we wouldn't say it that way, but it's secretly what we believe. Like, I, I'm stuck with this, and every time I open it, I can't wait to find out what else I'm not doing right that I'm supposed to do. And so we enter in going, oh, Lord, please, oh, no. A calling into what? Oh, and Ananias comes and goes, I have no idea what you're about to ask. I have no idea what you're about to say, but I do want to state my case right here, here. I am, I'm ready, bring it. Now, right after that, if he knew what the Lord was gonna say, he might have rethought his initial response, which tends to be the case, isn't it? That's why we come and say, God, whatever you're about to say, I'm anticipating it to be completely insane, so I'm ready, because you've got an incredible story you're writing, and I'm a part of that. Listen, watch this. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Now, Straight Street runs from east to west through Damascus. It is the most famous street in Damascus. Even to this day, what is today ancient Damascus, Straight Street is still there. It opens the east entrance of the city, closes at the west exit with a memorial that is an archway. And if you lived in Damascus, there was one street you knew, and that was Straight Street. So it would be like God coming to one of us and saying, I want you to go down to I Drive. I want you to find the Ethiopian restaurant. There's only one and I want you to go to it, and I want you to meet someone there. You wouldn't go, uh, where is I drive? You'd go, oh, I, I, I know I drive, and I may not know exactly where the Ethiopian restaurant is, but there's only one on I drive. I know where I drive is. I can find it. So God's basically saying, uh, look, it's, it's very simple. I want you to go to Straight Street. I want you to go to Judas's house, okay? And, and then here's what's going to happen when you get there. He says, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now, I love that God's doing this. Like, as though Ananias doesn't know who Saul of Tarsus is, right? He's kind of like, when you get there, I want you to look for this guy. He's from Tarsus, and his name is Saul. Now, we're not going to get there quite yet, but at that moment, Ananias' eyes start dilating. And he's like, oh, what? Does God have any idea what he just said? Because there's only one Saul of Tarsus I know about. And it's almost as though God's going, there's this guy, his name is Saul of Tarsus. You may not know him, but I want you to head down there. It seems that that's what God's doing, but he's not. Watch, take a look. For behold, he is praying, totally out of the box, right? Remember, Ananias kind of knows who Saul of Tarsus is because word's gotten out, and praying and Saul of Tarsus don't fit in the same sentence together unless he's praying against the gospel, okay? So take a look. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I'm just saying, right? I mean, that sort of seals the deal, doesn't it? Ananias, I'm here, and I'm requesting something from you, but just so we're clear, you're gonna have to say yes, because I've already told him you're coming. <laughs> like, I can't go get Susie to go now, because I didn't tell him Susie was coming. See, I love that God enters into our spaces with what he's gonna do in our lives, and he kinda goes, I'm kinda giving you some space to think this through, process it, you know, choose to do it, but I've, I've already written the story, so you're gonna do it, so you, you may as well, because I've already told them you're coming. You know, you, you're gonna go, I, lo I love that. And, and Ananias, he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, God has given Ananias all the necessary information, right? He's basically said to Ananias, hey, I got a story I'm busy writing here, I'm unfolding. Uh, you're, uh, you're lucky, because you're in it, it's so awesome. And I'm kind of backstage going, all right, Cue, Ananias, ready? This is gonna be awesome, you're gonna do great. Okay, go! God's kind of going, 
going, I got this. You just, you just gotta follow the cues. Just, just do what I'm asking you to do because remember, this is me. I got it, I got it covered. I know where he is, I know what street he's on, I know where he's staying, I know what he's doing, I know what he's wanting, I know what I've shown him. I've told him the story, I'm telling you the story. There should be nothing more here you need to know. But I love that God allows for us to kind of stand in shock, breathe deeply and go, can I ask a follow-up question just to confirm some things? Because remember, Ananias is a disciple who is ready to say, here I am, God. So he's not some guy that's like rebellious or some guy that's like, I ain't gonna do what you want. He's genuinely just going, um, excuse me, so look at this, I love this. But Ananias answered, um, uh, Lord, uh, I have heard from many about this man. You see how he's authenticating that he's not the only one? He's like, just, just in, I'm not saying you don't know this. I'm not saying that, I'm just saying, it, it is possible that there's a piece of information you may not have that many do in our city, and I just wanna confirm that you have this piece of information so that I just wanna make sure you've thought this through all the way, because what you're asking of me sounds really wrong. It sounds really crazy, like, like there's a missing piece in the puzzle you ought to know about, okay? Look, he's, he's not being arrogant. He's just, he's doing what I would do. Um, could, I, could I just... Can we just confirm that you're very clear on what you're asking me, right? Because do you know how stupid it sounds? Just wondering. Look, heard many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So he's going, uh, do you have the full picture? Because if you do, well then I, I, I'll go. But I just, I mean, who knows? Maybe God will go, oh, I didn't know he got the papers. I, I, if I'd known that, I would never send you to his house. You see, there is an assumption here, rightly so, because we can only observe what we can perceive and know and, and what's around us, that uh, maybe our information exceeds God's information. Maybe we know something he doesn't. I mean, we intellectually know that can't be possible, but who knows? So Ananias is kind of going, before I just jump in and do something insane and lose my life, are you clear on what you're asking me? Have you thought this through? Because this guy, as far as I know, is here to kill us. And so if that's what you want, look, I'll go and I'll die, but I just wanna make sure we're, we're good on that. But the Lord said to him, go. Go, it's okay. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. See, God is so gracious. He gives us room to wrestle, doesn't he? he I, I, I'm sure you have some concerns, Ananias, so go ahead and voice them. Uh, he's here to kill me. I, yep, I totally know that. <laughs> I know he has the papers, but I wanna tell you something. When I ask you to do something, even though it may threaten your life, even though it may cost you everything, even though you may feel like you are dying in it, know that there is nothing I'm calling you into that isn't part of the story I'm writing for a greater purpose than you can imagine. It just, that's what I do. And I've got all the bases covered, trust me. I'm not asking something insane from you just because I think it's funny. I'm doing this because I have something I'm writing that I'm inviting you into so that you can be part of a, an epic story and it involves a guy named Saul who used to be the face of the enemy but I'm doing something in him. So he actually says, when I send you know this, I am at work in Saul because I have chosen him to be on our team instead of their team. That's what I've done. So you're, you're gonna be okay trusting me on this one. Now I, I don't think that Ananias just simply then went, oh sweet, I'm not going to die going. Look, when you go to Saul's house, he was the poster child of the enemy. You're trusting God, but you're still going to Saul's house. Uh, Saul, uh, God said to come and heal you. Uh, he sees again, are you part of the way? I am, okay, you're going down. I mean, that, that's possible, right? Because Ananias didn't have all the pieces of information, he just knew that God said, I've got the story covered, I want you to go, I'm doing something big here. And look what he does, God is so gracious, 
because he not only knows those things we voice as concerns, he knows those things that deep down in our soul are kind of lingering there. We don't want to say them because we, we don't want to embarrass ourselves before God and pretend not to be a Christian, but those are the things that actually are in our heart, right? Here's one for you. Don't you think that Ananias thought to himself, hold on a second, Saul of Tarsus is in a house blind and scared and confused. I feel like that's a good thing. I mean, don't you? Don't you think that's how God would deal with our enemy? The enemy's coming to kill us. Oh, watch out. God's going to get you. God's going to blind you, stick you in a house, and make you all confused and scared and make you not eat and pray. I feel like that's where we need to leave Saul. I feel like that's a good idea. See, I don't think that Ananias voiced that, but I'm sure he felt it. And we see that in God's response here because God responds beyond just saying, look, here's what I'm doing in Saul's life. He says this, verse, eight, uh, verse um, uh, 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, it almost sounds like punitive, doesn't it? I'm gonna punish Saul for what he's done. But it's not what God's doing here at all. He's saying to Ananias, listen, Ananias, I know you're scared. I know this sounds crazy. I know that the whole world, when you tell them, when you go over to your friend's house and go, God, God just showed up in a vision and he told me to go to Saul of Tarsus's house on Straight Street to go pray over him. Your friends are gonna go, have you thought this through? Are you sure that's a vision from God? That sounds like a stupid vision and God is not stupid, so that can't be of God. Like all those things are gonna come out, right? Do you understand who Saul of Tarsus is? This is your death sentence. This is where you die, man. You don't do that. That's not what God would ever want for you. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be, to, to be safe. He wants you to be comfortable. Isn't that what any good father would want? God would never ask you to step into something that will kill you. I mean, I can hear that stuff coming from people rightly because that's our that's, that's human observation. This makes no sense. But, but here's the thing, God says to him, look, not only do I have a story I'm writing that you can't see right now, I've chosen this, I'm doing this, Saul is part of my team, but listen, if you're wondering whether there's some injustice in this, if you're wondering whether I'm just letting him get away with what he's done to the church, if you're wondering whether you should be the instrument of exacting our vengeance on the enemy, can I just say this, I got it covered, I got it covered. This man will live a life so obsessed with the gospel that he will face the greater persecution than any of you ever will. He will see things and feel things and know things and suffer in things that will be unbelievably large. And God didn't tell Ananias this, but we know this. Paul will not only lose his life in terms of the life he lived. He says things like, all things are rubbish now, man. All I've got left is Jesus. But he'll actually get his head chopped off at the end of it. Like He actually physically dies for his faith. So if you're wondering whether there might not be a better plan for the enemy, just let him rot in a house blind. I, I got everything covered. So if you feel like what's happening is not fair, how can you ask me of that? How can you ask me to love that person? How can you ask me to do that? How can you ask me to go there? I, I, I got it covered, including the injustices that you might perceive are yours to solve. I've actually got them covered already. See, there's no part of the story I haven't thought through. There's no part of the story I haven't written. There's no part of the story I'm not deeply involved in. So, Ananias, you can look at the circumstances and have them inform the situation, or you can trust me and know that I've got it covered. And so Ananias, after thinking about that, this is what he does. So, Ananias departed and entered the house. I love that. Once Ananias is done with God and going, are you sure, this, this sounds really hard. Yes, I'm sure, I got it covered. Ananias leaves and goes to Saul's house. I don't think Ananias kind of skipped down Straight Street. I can't wait to get to Saul's house, no. I think he probably stood at the door and just went, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I'm doing this. Dude, you better be so right. Knock, knock, knock. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. I love that little moment of faith. See, God is putting faith all over here. He's saying, look what Ananias bought into. I told Ananias, Saul was the enemy. He's now mine. Ananias believed me. You don't call Saul your brother. You don't go into Saul's house and go, Brother Saul who killed my friend Stephen. You go, Saul, God made me come. I'll pray. But he comes and he's like, Brother Saul, 
I want you to know something. You're on God's team now, you're on my team. Saul's first experience of the church, the body of Christ, was that the very people he was coming to kill obeyed God and stepped in and showed redemptive reality to them at the cost of their own lives. That's his first experience of the church. I know you're my enemy, I know you were here to kill me, I know you have papers and I know you could. God asked me to pray for you, I'm here to pray for you. Hey brother, love you man. That's amazing, that's powerful, that's miraculous. And that's crazy, stupid too. Because you never know what happens. And the Lord Jesus appeared, uh, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And when he rose, and then he rose and was baptized. And I love this last little line. This is the line at the end of the story that's, the, that's the, the cliffhanger for the next part. Because remember, we just found out in the story, we didn't know this before, that Saul was gonna be used of God to go to Gentiles, wow, kings, wow, and the people of Israel, wow. And this is how the story ends. And taking food, he was strengthened. Don't you love that? It's like, hold on. When he's strong and God's done with him, a story that's gonna unfold is gonna be wild and crazy. And that's where we end this story. Paul is getting stronger. He sees clearly now, and I'm ready. Once again, we stand in a story of the book of Acts, and it's, it's shouting the same thing to us. It, it might be redundant, but it's so necessary. Whose story is this? This thing we're experiencing on planet Earth. It's not ours, it's God's. He's the author, he's the finisher. He's the perfecter. He's the one writing it. It's his story. He doesn't exist to give us our story. He doesn't sit around going, oh, who needs a better life? Here. His story is being written for his glory and his kingdom and his gospel and his redemption and he's got it covered. God is not sitting around going, oh man, Saul's really bad guy and he's got papers now and he's gonna kill the gospel. This is what God does, okay? Oh, I want him on my team. Wait, he was the key to our entire strategy. I know, it's so sad for you. That's what God does. But you see, simultaneously, here's what God doesn't do. Okay, all the bad guys are now gone. He could have done that, right? I mean, Jesus could have appeared simultaneously to every Pharisee and every Sadducee on that entire thing saying, what are you all doing persecuting me? They would have all been shocked, all been blinded, all praying in rooms and all begging for forgiveness. Why didn't God do that? Why did God pull Saul out, but leave everybody else still chasing the gospel down? Why didn't he just solve our problem? Why didn't he just fix it? He could have, if he could pull Saul out, he could pull anyone out. You see, that, you see what God's telling us here? You, you should never assume what I'm up to. You should never think to yourself, based on my observations and everything I'm seeing, I know exactly what God's doing. No, you don't. And when you think I'm crazy, when you think what I'm doing is crazy, when you think what I'm asking of you is crazy, I know it is. Because all you see is the here and the now and the observable and the realities and the circumstances and they are not your gods. I am. So when I say it's okay, when I say to do it my way, when I say to go, you can trust if you trust me. But if you're gonna trust what you see, well, then it's not gonna make any sense. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. So you will be dictated by what makes sense then. That's why the Bible says, I do not live by sight, but by faith in Christ. Because sight is insane. It's our death sentence. It allows the circumstances of our lives and the logical uh, reality of our calling to dictate whether we should or should not obey God. It's crazy but we do it all the time. And so God is showing us in a tangible story here, don't live by sight, because sight sometimes makes sense, and sight sometimes doesn't, but you don't know which is which. I always make sense, because don't ever forget, I am the author and finisher of this story. It's my story, I got it covered, that sets you free from fear. You don't have to worry, what I'm calling you into will make sense, in my redemptive plan, and here's the deal. I didn't come here to erase evil and to erase sin. 
I came here to redeem evil and to redeem sin. There's a big difference. What do you mean? Well, if I erased evil, I erase all of you. Because remember, before we were redeemed, we were part of the dominion of darkness. We were sin. We were children of wrath. It's described in Scripture. So at any point in time where God decided now's the time to wipe sin off the planet, he's wiping us off the planet. But he didn't do that. Instead, he redeems us. He redeems our brokenness. He redeems us. And and do you know how he redeemed us? Oh, yeah, that's right. He came, became flesh and blood, died a horrible death on a horrible cross, the kind of death that makes us all sick if we understand it. I mean, half of you didn't even watch the passion because it was too violent. And that didn't even really capture what really happened to Jesus. It's horrid. If there was any other way, don't you think God would have done it? Don't you think God would have spared his son from dying on a cross if he could just fix it by erasing it? No, redemption by definition comes through death and suffering and resurrection because to buy back the dead, you have to pay with death. We know this. It's in Scripture. And then God comes to us and says, I've restored your purpose now to image my redemptive reality. So how do you think we're going to image redemption now? By becoming better Uh, more blessed, more rich, and more fun than everybody else to show that God, anyone that belongs to God, gets everything they want? Now, does that sound like redemption to you? Does that sound like what Jesus did? I mean, Jesus didn't have a rock to put his head on half the time. He was born in a manger. I mean, it's just crazy. What redemption looks like is this. I will take up a cross now, and I will struggle through carrying the burdens of others, sometimes feeling crushed by that. I will have to experience circumstances that should not be for a person who belongs to the kingdom of God. I may have to get sick. I may have to have some drunk driver hit my car. I may have to see a loved one die. I may have to face things that don't make any sense if God is my father and he is good. But that's because I'm not here to have my best life. I'm here to be on mission when I leave planet earth everything will be made new and then I will know the fullness of God's wonder in the meantime on planet earth here's what I can expect some of the things God does in my life will be miraculous they will transcend circumstance I will have peace when I should be anxious I will have love when I should have hatred I will share when I should keep because I don't have enough I will be bold when I am afraid And I will see some circumstances potentially even miraculously change in my life when they shouldn't because God does love us and he is our father and sometimes he just blesses us because he can. And that's good. We don't live in a poverty theology that says you're not spiritual if you're blessed. No, God sometimes does awesome stuff and you should expect some of that. It's good. But if that's what you're after, you totally miss missional living and you miss the redemptive reality of God because sometimes God calls us into things and allows things around us to happen that fits into the martyr category. Miracles here, martyrdom here. Sometimes that means we will lose our very lives, but sometimes, probably in our context, it will mean we will feel like we're losing our lives. We will be dying to self. We'll be going, this feels like death, where are you? Because we have this ideology that says, if it's going well and the miracles are happening, God is in it. But if I'm struggling and I'm suffering under the weight of circumstances, where is God? And what this story tells us is, man, I'm all over the place. You have to learn to trust that sometimes hard things will happen to you and sometimes suffering will be your story and sometimes it'll be because of random, ridiculous circumstances. Sometimes it'll be because of your sin or other sin and sometimes it'll just be because I asked you to do something insane. But when it makes no sense, when you look at your circumstances or my calling and it makes no sense, know this. This is my story, I've got it whole thing covered, and not only is it my story, but I have decided to write you into it. Because I want you to know you're worth it. I want you to know you're a key part of it all. This is my story, but it's also your story, see? And it's not the story you write, it's the story you get to go, okay, okay, cue, Renault, ready? <laughs> you can have such an awesome story. When you die, don't worry about it. It's not going to hurt for long. Go! <laughs> you understand? Sometimes our part in the story 
is to experience the miracle so everybody can look at God and go, wow, he's amazing. And sometimes our part in the story is to experience death so that everyone can watch and go, wow, that's amazing. So when God calls us into obedience, and it's countercultural, it's right here, it tells us what to do. We don't do it because we want to stay right with God so he can bless us with everything we want. We do it because he's allowed us to say, why would I trust what I see when I know what you've said? See, why would I do that? You've said to do it this way. The world says, oh, are you uncomfortable? Is it hard? Is the other person hurting your feelings a lot? Is, is that circumstance bad? Is that job tough for you? Oh, God wouldn't want you in a job that's uncomfortable. God wouldn't want you to do something that's miserable. God wouldn't want you to suffer in that, in that relationship. God wouldn't want you to let that poor person go uh, because you love them now. See, God wouldn't want those things for you because he wants what for you? He wants you to be happy and comfortable and safe because that's what God does. No, no I mean, have you read this? <laughs> that is what God does in our lives at times. And at other times, he asks us things that are counterintuitive to the comforts we so desperately seek. And when all your friends, both Christian and non-Christian, say, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Logic says this is what you should do now. You go, yeah, but God said not to. And I don't live by what I see. I live by what I know that he has revealed to me because I now know who I am. My life on this planet isn't about me. It's not about the great life I get to have. It's not about making it all work for myself. It's actually about God and about what I get to do for him in both miracles and martyrdom to say this is all about you. Because when I leave this planet, I wanna be able to say one thing. I believed you. I didn't believe my circumstances. I didn't believe my friends when they were saying this isn't the most logical choice. I believed you, and it cost me, man. I gotta tell you, it cost me. I had to live through some crazy stuff. Was not fun, was not easy, but I believed you. And if that's all that that did, then that's enough. It sets us free to see our circumstances, whatever they are, as a gift from God, however hard they may be. And it sees the calling of God, whether it's through the simple commands of scripture or the spirit of God calling us into insane stories as open and free, despite the fact that they might produce what seems like suffering and what is suffering, because God said it. And if we go down to Straight Street, we knock on Saul's door, we walk in, and Saul ends up shooting us through the head because he's actually, it's a trap and he's trying to kill us, then to the glory of God, right? Because God said go, I didn't make that up, he said go. And if I walk in and Saul actually turns out to be a believer and changes the entire world, well then glory to God because my life belongs to him now, not to me. You know Saul, the guy we're talking about? Well, he did end up changing the world in a big way, and he wrote most of the New Testament, actually. <laughs> Who knew? And um, he wrote these words, these words. You see, he figured out, like we're figuring out, that once you belong to Jesus, you've only got one option. Fix your eyes on Christ, stay true to that, and believe him, don't believe anything else, because if you believe anything else, you'll be miserable in the calling that God calls you into, because sometimes it's hard. Not always, but sometimes. Listen. Verse 20 of Galatians chapter two, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, no it's not, but Christ who lives in me. Now watch what Paul says. And the life I now live in the flesh, which is basically like saying, the life I now live on planet Earth, the one that's surrounded by sin and has sin in my flesh trying to kill me and is tempting and I'm like, oh, it's horrible. I want to go home to heaven and be happy. That life that I'm now living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, what Paul's saying is I only have one option on planet Earth now to be able to stay the course of missional living. When all things around me are going wrong, when I'm shipwrecked, floating in the middle of the ocean, going, there's sharks everywhere. Is this my story? And Paul had that experience among many others. He was stoned three times, beaten seven times, arrested 22 times in the ocean floating around for days, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, beaten by people, rejected, kicked out of cities and towns and lost his head at the end of his life. What? Yeah, yeah, that, that was his life and this is what he said. I no longer live, but I live by faith in the flesh that I see. When everything I see seems so wrong, I remember what Jesus said. Don't worry, everything is so right. 
because the story I'm writing is bigger than you can imagine. Do you think Paul could have ever imagined that we would be sitting here 2,000 years later reading this and most of it was written by him? Do you think he could have ever imagined that? Do you think he could ever have imagined that we would be sitting here saying, you know, let's remember Paul's suffering because he gives us great hope that God is actually writing the story, that his suffering produced in us comfort and salvation. Do you think he could have ever imagined that when he was floating in the ocean? You know, this isn't going well. God, God, and God said, I, I, I'm authoring every piece of this. Chill, watch. I close with this, Bible's upside down. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes and he explains all of this to us in a simple little paragraph. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. If we are afflicted, that means we're suffering. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Isn't that amazing? If your story currently is full of suffering, struggle, difficulty, you feel like, what have I done? I should have picked the easy way out. I should have gone the other direction. Everybody said that would be a better direction, except my insane pastor who told me I should stick with this. I mean, what was he thinking? I'm gonna kill him. If you've ever felt that way, don't worry. You're not the only one. Plenty of people don't like me. Um, so here's the thing. If you ever feel like, is my suffering worth it? Is God even in this? Listen to this. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, Paul says. Now watch. And if we are comforted, so there's hope. Sometimes we're afflicted. Sometimes we're comforted. Paul's saying, hey, you're gonna get, get in a bit of both all over the place. Don't look for either one or the other. Look, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Why? Because God is saying, even those who are afflicted, I will comfort. And those who are comforted may be afflicted at times. It's okay. It's part of the story. Watch. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience, here's the beauty, when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Do you see what Paul's saying? Do not think that God's story for you is this. I'm going to make you suffer till you die because I think it's funny. No, no, if we ever suffer, it is only because our suffering will lead to the purposes of God and to the salvation of others and for the comfort of those who know Jesus and our suffering will be redeemed and redemptive in every way. So when it is heavy, when you feel crushed, when you feel lost, when you feel practically dead, when you go, no, 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 this feels unbearable, this feels too heavy, I can't do this. And all your friends are saying this to you, have you heard this one? God will never give you anything that you can't bear. Just say to them, that's not true. It's not true. It's not in the Bible. Where'd you get that? God will never give you more than you can bear. Actually, that's not true. You go, what? No, no, listen. Paul doesn't stop here. Okay, does this sound like God's giving Paul less than he can bear? Watch. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. This is right after the verse I just read of the affliction we experienced in Asia. You ready? <laughs> For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Does that sound like God's not giving Paul more than he can bear? It sounds like he wants to die, actually. Oh, he doesn't stop there. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul's on his knees, burdened by the realities of Asia so deeply that he basically goes, just kill me. Oh, but look. But look. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We forget that our story is about God's glory and his work he's finishing in us. It's his story and our story. And when we choose to believe God over what we see, when we choose to courageously stick with things that the world tells us to give up on, when we courageously decide to step into things that the world says are insane, when we courageously look at our circumstances that seem to shout, is God really good? And go, yes, he is then we choose to say, this is about God, it's not about me. And in our suffering, we will experience our great comfort because we will know, see, I no longer live, 
but Christ lives in me. And the life I live on planet earth, I live not by sight, but by faith in what Christ said to be true, because there will come a day that even if I should suffer my whole life, even if this is hard for the rest of my life, and it probably won't be, but even if it is, I will leave this planet and I will go, I believed you. I believed you. And isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? And God says, yes, it's enough, but it's not all I'll do. When you live that way, the story I will write in you, through you, and around you will be for the comfort and salvation of others. You will become redemptive as I redeemed you. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And remember that if we suffer for a little while now, our suffering is for the glory of God. And if we are in abundance for a little while now, our abundance is for the glory of God. And if we are blessed for a little while now, our blessing is for the glory of God. And if we are crushed and dying under the weight of it all, our dying is for the glory of God because He will never forget our story because He's the one writing it. Amen? Let's pray. God, I know this to be true because we've seen it, we've experienced it, we've heard it. We experience it in our everyday lives because things don't always work out the way we think they should if you're good and you love us and you care about us. Sometimes weird, crazy stuff happens that we don't ask for that just seems to shout, God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you, God's forgotten you. And sometimes you ask us to do things that seem so wondrous up front and then we get into them and then they try to kill us. And we think, gosh, was this the right decision? Was this real? Should I have done something else? I mean, if God is in this, surely he would make this easy. Surely, surely he would make this happy. Surely he wouldn't want me to die under the weight of this. Would you remind us in those places, God, when we feel crushed and lost and overwhelmed and we feel like, how can you give this to me? You said you wouldn't give me anything I can bear that you would shout back and say, no, I never said that. Never said that. But what I did say was this that if you happen to die under this weight, I will resurrect you from the dead. And God, that is the greater miracle. Not that you would save us from death, but that you would watch us die and then bring us back to life. Who does that? Who does that? So God, may we walk into our life this week boldly going into the difficult, into the overwhelming, into the calling that you have called us into, whether it is in the obediences of your word, that we stick to things that the world's telling us to abandon, whether it is into the calling of your spirit, into big stories that seem to be bigger than we should be able to bear and end up feeling that way and being that way, or whether it is a set of circumstances we didn't ask for but that came our way, would you give us the vision to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, and to remember this, that if we suffer now, we suffer for the comfort and salvation of others. If we suffer now, we suffer because we have the unshakable assurance that in our patient endurance in suffering, you will comfort us there in time. And remind us, God, that if we should lose ourselves in the mix, feel like we have died to everything we used to think was us, that that's actually a good thing because we are called to die to self so that you would become everything for us. Remind us that you never allow our suffering to happen just so it happens, but that in it, when we are doing things or choosing things or experiencing things that are unbearable, that in that place you will use that to remind us and to teach us and to affect in us the ability not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on you, which is all we actually want, God. So I pray you'd make it so in our lives, in our blessing, in our suffering, in our joys, in our tragedies. Remind us that 
this is not paradise. Paradise waits. Paradise waits.